Hello and welcome to Simply Technical. I am one of your co-hosts, Evan, and I am followed here by Keaton. And this is going to be our second podcast of 2022, about to head into 2023. Keaton, you had a good break from Christmas. and Yeah, yeah, I was uh, relaxing. Uh, probably the most relaxing Christmas break I've had in a while. We've been every, every, the last three years, I've been, either me or the wife has been sick during Christmas. So it was nice to, you know, be healthy and with the family. So that was a big plus. Yeah. Um, the last three years have been kind of crazy. So yeah, it's good to have a good break and to be able to see everybody and just enjoy family time, even though it can be stressful. Um, you know, you got to worry if your gifts are good enough. And... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Everybody, welcome back to Simply Technical. We're going to kind of go over some breakthroughs this year. And Keaton, uh, Keaton's kind of heading up this topic for today. Are these mainly breakthroughs for 2022, or are they kind of been breakthroughs, you know, a couple years ago, and now they're starting to gain more momentum? Yeah, these are – okay, so I'm going to go through three of my favorite biology breakthroughs from this year. Two of them are specifically from this year. One of them, uh, like you said, is a little bit uh, – older a few years old but it's progressed rapidly in the last year to the point where it's probably going to be widely used in humans over the next several decades okay um and if we have some time i have a couple topics for myself about um just some advances in some renewable energies like i said if we don't get to it if we're at you know the 45 minute mark and we've already gone through um some stuff we won't start a new topic but um Keaton, why don't you go ahead and lead off with your first one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first one, this actually came out in early 2022. So I think it came out in January of 2022 uh, from some researchers at Pennsylvania University. And what they are doing is they take uh, T cells, so an immune immune cell that uh, generally, well, I guess I got to kind of go back and explain the platform. So chimeric antigen receptor T cells have been a sort of uh, new treatment for cancer in the last few years that essentially what you do at a high level is you take the T cells out of the body, you genetically alter them or, or uh, add a targeting antibody that will cause them to directly target the can- the patient's cancer. So it's a very personalized therapy uh, that's been pretty new and has been pretty successful for some types of cancers. So the idea is these T cells will kill the cancer cells. So you wouldn't really think that um, uh, what these researchers did is they wanted to see if the CAR T cells could uh, help the injured heart. So a, a heart that suffered a heart attack, which you wouldn't really think that something that kills and targets uh, certain cells is going to heal you or regenerate uh, function in the heart. But interestingly, that's what they did. So I'll have to kind of go through a little bit of... of what happens after you have a heart attack. So you have a heart attack, the blood is uh, occluded from a certain spot in the heart. This leads to cell death in that area. And that area becomes filled with uh, fibrotic uh, lesions, sort of. So the heart generally is pretty flexible. It pumps, it's pretty flexible, but when you have fibrosis, it becomes a lot stiffer. So it doesn't pump nearly as well. It doesn't fill nearly as well either. So this uh, fibrotic scar is laid down by these cells called fibroblasts. Makes sense. 
And essentially what these researchers did is reprogram these mice, these mouse uh, uh, T-cells to target the fibroblasts and kill the fibroblasts uh, post uh, heart attack, myocardial infarction. And what this did is it actually recovered function, recovered the function and protected the mice from uh, from the loss in cardiac function you get during a heart attack. But what they did to make it even more interesting is generally when you, you know, and when you modify T cells like you do in the general CAR T cell therapy uh, landscape, this is a permanent mutation. So these are always going to target uh, and kill these and kill the cells. So in the cancer landscape, you always want it to be killing and recognizing any cancer that uh, sprouts back up. But in the uh, context of the heart, you you definitely need fibroblasts for general function. So you don't want it to constantly be killing every fibroblast in the body. These are uh, necessary all over in different uh, tissues. So interesting what they interestingly enough what they did is they basically took the uh, COVID vaccine technology, the mRNA sort of development, and they uh, instead of taking the T cells out of the mice. They infused this uh, mRNA uh, in a, a lipid nanoparticle that was specifically targeted to T cells, and this this mRNA can reprogram those T cells to target the fibroblasts, kind of what I was saying earlier. But what makes the mRNA mRNA piece so nice is that it's transient, so it goes away after a certain amount of time, thus you know leaving your fibroblasts at a later point still intact as they'll continue to divide. So it essentially heals the heart and it goes away. And you could just, it seems like this would be just straight up off the shelf. You could say, oh, this person had a heart attack. Let's throw this in them and uh, prevent the fibrotic scar that generally occurs with a heart attack so they have protected function. Okay. So, I mean, on a superior, super high level, obviously I'm not a biology guy or um, medical field guy. Um. I don't think a lot of people realize that like your heart has to pump blood to itself. Um, yes. <laughs> so there's multiple, yeah. you know, uh, is vein the right word? Um, the, the arteries are multiple uh, arteries coming off of your heart. Arteries. Yeah. Going back to itself to, mm -hmm. you know, it's a cell. So it needs oxygen, you know, it needs, um, you know, the different type of, you know, glucose and everything that um, allows the heart to, to function as a cell in itself. Um and so from going upon that, these CAR T cells, um, it's important because we use what they're attacking all over our body. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Well, fibroblasts are necessary for basically every tissue. You need at least some sort of uh, fibrotic, a, a, a base level of fibrosis or ready to be made fibr fibrosis in certain like scar scar tissue scar is tissue? basically okay. fibrosis okay. and but this can become pathologic when it's like overactive and it's overactive in the uh uh heart attack situation so in in that situation basically what was cardiomyocytes pumping cells becomes just a fibrotic scar and so it doesn't pump anymore and it doesn't fill very well it's not plastic which is what you need in a heart and we have we don't have any treatments for heart attack we don't have anything that can regenerate heart tissue everything that everything that is 
to this point that's in the clinic is basically preventative. Like we're not going to, we're going to prevent. Well, stents is an example. Yes. yes. um, Is going to open up your arteries and vein, I guess veins more as well um, to allow more blood flow because a heart attack is basically your artery locking. Yeah. So it's not getting enough um, blood pumped to it and causing obviously issues. Um, and so another, you know, the preventative thing is stents. Okay. Well, we see that you have, you know, 50% blockage or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the percentage is and, uh, putting stents in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a preventative measurement, but, but once the heart attack has happened, there's nothing that stents can do except prevent another heart attack essentially. So, so I'm, I'm interested in cardiovascular biology and then, what I want to do is to be able to completely sort of reprogram what my lofty, lofty ideal goal or in the ideal goal, like the Holy grail of the cardiac biology field is reprogramming the heart, the diseased heart. So that you can recover the, you know, sort of youthful stage that we, we have now uh, post uh, heart attack, post chronic heart disease, basically just, rejuvenating it back to a certain state. But there's only like a few approaches that you could do that. There's the approach where people will take, they think that you could take stem cells and inject them or, and they'll seed the heart to allow it to re repump, you know, seed that fibrotic lesion and the cardiomyocytes will go there and become and pump, pump again, hasn't worked at all. Uh, hopefully it will in the future. There's also the people who want to bioengineer tissue so that's promising, um, although I don't know how long it will be until that's in the in the clinic. And the unfortunate truth is, you need to open someone up to uh, put on a patch, a, a cardiac patch. And then there's the reprogramming, which is basically saying we're going to turn these cells into uh, healthy pumping cardiomyocytes. We're going to turn the fibro fibroblasts into healthy pumping cardiomyocytes. We're going to turn whatever junk is in here to a healthy state again. And I think this is like the first sort of, this is like reprogramming 0.5. This is like the first step to getting to that sort of like holy grail of regeneration in, in the uh, heart. And so that's why I think it was one of the most interesting and underrated studies of the year. I, I don't see very many, I haven't seen anybody talk about this as one of the breakthroughs of the year, but I think it, I think it certainly is. And I think it can also be applied to a lot of, a lot of things. I mean, fibrosis affects it or is a part of many diseases like interstitial lung fibrosis uh, is essentially like the lungs becoming stiff to where they can no longer inflate and it's a terminal disease. And so this could potentially be used as a treatment in that there's, uh, I believe there's, you know, kidney fibrosis, uh, some liver, Think this could basically be repackaged into many different disease modalities, but for the heart, it's especially exciting because I think it's uh, it's definitely been a very elusive target for researchers over the last several uh, decades. Well, and I mean, you have to imagine from a you know like a general standpoint, you I mean when you get a scar on your arm or your leg or you know. It's going to be there for life. It might shrink up some, but these are organs that you're talking about. So like yeah. they don't just shrink or, um, you know, 
just don't just die off. Um, yeah, you and, die off, then you die. Um, you, yeah, you need every piece of that of that organ functioning to to be a fully functioning human being, essentially. Yeah. Um, what I think was interesting, you said mRNA um, from the COVID vaccine or technology that was kind of yeah, yeah, kind of breakthrough. I guess would you say for it was breakthrough in the clinic? It's been around for a long time in the labs, but yeah, uh, definite breakthrough for people like seeing in the last few years i guess or a couple of years kind of more mainstream um yeah. do you do you think that kind of hurts because I, I feel like <laughs> the general public and if you don't want to get into this i understand um the general public might have a slight towards mrna vaccines because of um you know being forced in the past yeah, I could see. I could definitely see how it's got like some negative connotation. But the truth of the matter is, once you if you have a heart attack, you're at the point where, I mean, first off, I'm fully on board with the mRNA stuff. I was on board way before COVID. Uh, I was a big, I was a big Moderna stock boy back in back in the day before COVID, because uh, I thought the technology was really nice because you could just basically take take the uh, mRNA and essentially switch out the sequences to target any disease you want. It's like super, super modular and uh, quick off the shelf, or should be, I guess, which is why they were the fastest vaccines to be ready. And that's why the, the general, why we didn't have, why they beat out the general vaccines first, because it was super easy, uh, super modular. But anyways, that's besides the point. Um, to me, when you have no treatment options, that's going to be what you're going to go for, no matter what your connotation of mRNA is. I mean, uh, the truth is we're making billions, trillions of mRNAs right now. And every all the cells of our body are making mRNA uh, and then eventually proteins. And that's how we execute the functions in all of our cells. So it, the, the use of the mRNA is just essentially to say, oh, we're going to code this protein in cell. But, and in the T cell, you send the mRNA, and that mRNA codes a protein that targets fibroblasts, essentially. So, and the nice part about mRNA is it's not permanent; it goes away. So, you'd modify the DNA; that's a permanent, a permanent mutation. mRNA, it's used up and it's gone, and the T cells back to its normal self. And so that's that's what makes mRNA. It's always what has been what made mRNA more interesting to me than. DNA uh, uh, gene editing approaches for everything. I mean, of course, there's some gene editing or genetic diseases that are like you want to get rid of. You know, you want to get rid of. Yeah, but most genetic most genetic diseases are really complex where you have multiple mutations. So mRNA is sort of the safer approach <laughs> to me because it's it not. I guess. I don't really know how to say uh, else to say this, but it's reversible. It goes away uh, after a certain point of time, point in time. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, since there's not really any, just to your point, there's not really any other solutions currently, like you said, besides preventative. So yeah. if you don't have any treatment options, hey, it's either you live with the um, problems that your heart attack caused, or we can, you know, fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. No one wants to have open heart surgery, but if you're if it's life and death, you're going to get that open heart surgery. 
but that's uh well the risk uh, is you die anyways so. the risk is you die anyways <laughs> when you have this sort of like asymmetric risk the the reward is so high <laughs> or the you're willing to take any amount of risk if the if the reward is you, you live <laughs> yeah essentially um let's pivot into this next point i think you mentioned something about a weight loss drug um, yes yes if if you're done with that previous uh, i yeah i'm done with the, the okay. last one okay so the, and i'm the very interested loss. in this as you can tell i'm a little bit larger so uh <laughs> Hard work, you know, <laughs> should win, but you know, if there's modern medicine. Modern medicine plus it. hard work is the ideal, the ideal uh, situation. But but this is kind of the one I was talking about, where it was a something that's been in the for coming for the last few years, but it's really like launched onto the scene in the last year specifically, and that's the uh, GLP one slash uh, uh, GIP coagonist or GLP one agonists, which basically. Uh, so, so first off, it's just kind of like set the scene. Almost half of the United States is obese, and this obviously leads to increase in risk for essentially every single disease. So, just to set that, it's almost imperative that you want a drug. In general, I I generally think that chronic medication is generally bad. That a chronic medication is usually used to treat symptoms. Um, or, you know, not a root cause of, of multiple diseases, certainly. So, you know, controlling and treating obesity has been like a huge deal for the medical community for the last couple decades. And of course it can be done through like lifestyle modifications. Like we said, you could eat less food, you could work out, but the truth of the matter is those are not easy at all. Uh, I mean, we're kind of like, unfortunately adapted to we've kind of like evolved to um, pack on as much weight as possible in a way because food was scarce for forever until the last basically 100 years. So this uh, lack of food scarcity has sort of hindered our our population and and the truth is that's to me it's why the US actually lags in lifespan compared to most other first world countries most first world countries don't have the obesity rate that we do so of course we want these we want drugs and i think we finally found them and i i won't go into like super details here because i don't quite understand i haven't read enough on the actual mechanisms of these drugs but i will briefly mention that so the GLP-1 agonist sort of took the started a few years ago. Semiglutide showed, you know, there were small scale studies that showed semiglutide, which is one of these drugs, could um, could uh, reduce weight in, in diabetic patients. And so then they looked at obese patients without diabetes, and they saw that they saw some good weight reduction. So this this trial started scaling up. The excitement started scaling up probably two or three years ago, around this time, and Finally, this like led to in July of this year a large a large scale phase three study. So the last sort of phase where you have double blinded experiments at done with a large amount of, of population. So this means that the patients don't know whether they're on placebo, uh, and the doctors the doctors don't know whether they're on placebo or the drug. And then they also had varied amounts of the drug. And so in this one they used terzepatide, which is a GLP one. Uh, 
is GLP-1 GIP coagonist. So it's it's targeting two separate two separate but similar uh, incretins, sort of like hormones, and it's causing these these to be upregulated. And essentially, what what it showed was that the at the highest um, dose of this drug there was a body weight reduction of on average 20% over a 1.5 year treatment with the with terzepatide, which is massive. That's better than almost every single uh, lifestyle modification study. It's just uh, um, far more effective. I think I can show at least sort of look at the graphs of these. So let's see if I can share my screen. Oh, I don't actually don't see the share the screen. Oh, percent. So, uh, it's still showing up. There we go. So, what well, you can kind of see, if I can zoom in on this, I guess I can. This is the, this is, so it's a 72 week study, so about a 1.5 year study. And the 15 meg had about, on average, of a minus 20.9 percent reduction in, in weight in weight and placebo almost you know not little to no so it is obviously extremely effective when you compare it to placebo and this is something that doesn't i mean this is something that completely change the way our society is operating why is it not letting me stop the share it's weird uh okay there we go this is this is um massive for the medical community because obesity leads to so many chronic diseases and contributes to so many chronic diseases that this the cost is astronomical for healthcare. And when we finally have drugs to treat to treat this, you're going to see massive uh, weight reduc rate reduction in society. You'll see less expenditure on healthcare, which will be ideal. And just overall, I mean, I think that in general, a healthier lifestyle is a happier life lifestyle and it sort of makes it easy because you don't have to do the the exercise or the hardcore dieting it's essentially what so they don't really know how it works but the main mechanism that we sort of understand is it's suppressing appetite so it's an appetite suppressant and this causes you to just crave food less so yeah it's it's a really really interesting a field that's rapidly developing in the last year. And I wish I understood it better, but uh, I think we'll see a lot more prescription of these widespread throughout the U.S. in the next year or two. It's already, I mean, med weight loss clinics are popping up left and right, and all they're doing is just prescribing this drug. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's kind of like the marijuana clinics, but a little bit healthier. <laughs> Um, well, I wanted to touch on one of the points you said it was reducing on average about 21%, I think is what you said. Yeah, yep. so that's, I mean, for just numbers sake, obesity is if you're at 30%, correct? So like, I yeah, think I'm not sure. I don't know the body fat. I guess it's not, it's not reducing 20% body fat. It's reducing 21% body weight. Body weight. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that could be much more than, um, Essentially, you know, if you're a 300-pound person, then you lose, what, 60 pounds? Is that right? Yeah, pretty sure. So uh, 
I mean, that would get a lot of people out of obesity. Um, yeah, it would de- definitely. Back into normal, normal ranges. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously they have charts, you know, depending on your height to weight, um, you know, male, female, um, different charts like that. So um, that's, that's quite impressive. I mean, ultimately you want a lifestyle change. Um, I know this doesn't look good coming from a big guy, but, you know, you don't ultimately want a lifestyle change in the fact of like eating less or, um, you know, exercising more um, when it gets down to brass tacks. That's kind of that's the ideal. I mean, that's the, the ideal. ideal state. Yes, definitely. And, and I mean, th- there has been studies shown once once the drug is removed, people will put the weight back on if they're not adjusting their lifestyle. And that but that is a sadly how lifestyle also works you know you have these people put into a study and the study's really rigorous where they've changed they're restricting their calories for those you know 16 weeks or however long the period is but then after the you know hardcore medical uh sort of trial trial is over they're they're going to put that weight back on or at least a part of it back on and said it's been shown time and time again it's just really hard to stick to lifestyle modifications and and for me i'm all i'm all on board i i think everyone should should try to change the lifestyle and especially diet that's i mean most research has shown that diet is is by far the most important factor for losing weight uh, uh, exercise might help a little bit but there's been sort of studies showing that what when you exercise and you burn calories you're so your body is always burning calories you you burn calories to function the heart is burning calories to pump the brain is burning calories to think it's everything is burning some some level of calories but it shows once when you exercise your body will sort of slow the calorie burning down the rest of the day to sort of compensate for those that calorie loss in the morning. So that just goes to show that when it comes to weight loss, diet and eating less calories is the most important. And that's just really, really hard for the majority of people. Um, well, I mean, so so we have such an abundance kind of back to your, you know, when yeah. you first started talking was, you know, first time in human history, you know, the last thousands of years, we've had an abundance of food, you know, I can walk down to the corner and get McDonald's Mm -hmm. um, or I have food in my cabinets, you know, Um, it's, we're at an extraordinary time as far as uh, food wise. Um, But it is interesting that you say that about the, the, the diet. Um, It's yeah, I lost what I was about to say, but um yeah, and I mean, the truth is, it, it shows they've also had studies not with the terzepatide. So, terzepatide is by far the most uh, impressive one. The, the one that I showed you the graph of is the most impressive one. But there has been studies with others with, that show weight loss, but then you tack on lifestyle modifications, and that weight loss is even more extreme. So, I can imagine a world where you know you get prescribed this drug and you lose weight, you shift the lifestyle. And then maybe you can remove the drug and hopefully you can stick to the lifestyle after this, after being on it for so long. Uh, because the, the truth is most trials that show try lifestyle changes don't generally last long enough to really instill habits. But I think if you're changing your lifestyle and taking the drug and you're seeing drastic results, that's kind of more addicting than generally just changing your diet and your results are going to be a lot slower. 
Well, and I think (laughs) to go on like as a society, we are addicted to how we are perceived by other people. And Mm -hmm. so like, oh, hey, look, I lost a lot of weight. And, you know, you're back on social media or whatever. And, oh, you gained a bunch of weight back. You know, that's going to be so embarrassing. That's going to be embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) And so that that social interaction that you get with losing weight, I think, is substantially um, higher perceived on a human level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I guess this type of drug would kind of rule out elective surgeries. Like, you know, people get their stomach... Bariatric, yeah, or uh, 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 what is it called? Not, uh, where people get tubes on their stomach and stuff, or on their yeah, yeah. Oh, I uh, cannot think of what it's called. It's very common. The food, uh, the food track kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, but it's it's it has fairly. There's a ton of side effects. Yeah, I've never done it. Devastating but side effects. There's so many people that I've talked to that talk gastric about, bypass, like, gastric bypass. That's that right. they have like horrible acid reflux. You know. Um, they get sick to their stomach when they eat, you know, there's, yeah. there's a bunch of most people that get it. They, they got to get it reversed because of how horrible the side effects are. And yeah. so obviously, you know, that elective surgery will go down. Sorry if you're a doctor that does that, but um, <laughs> yeah, you um, in like the long run, it's, I think it's, it's better as a, in a society. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I generally think that a healthier society is a better society, happier society, more productive society. Um, so this is all around a very positive, positive result. Uh, oh, I remember what I was going to talk about. Um, you talk about exercise. Uh, my cousin, he mm-hmm. posted his, he ran a marathon. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably saw me post about it. It's, you know, a couple months ago. He ran a marathon and only burned like 1,600, 1,700 calories. Oh, really? That's and a- like, like did not burn that many calories running a marathon. <laughs> and I'm like. Dude, this is why exercise is so difficult because you can run on the treadmill for 30 minutes and you burn you off do anything. You, yeah. you burn off half of your lunch, you know, if you um, you know, you only burn off 400 calories, something like 500 calories. Yeah. It's like okay, well, that was worth it. But Yeah, yeah, and I, and I mean, the marathon the 1600 sounds a little extreme to me. Maybe I don't know, maybe, maybe I can something find it. something might be wrong with this calculator, <laughs> but but, it's but probably that like is an, true. it was like an Apple Watch or something. Yeah, but that is true. I mean, most ex- no one's running the Michael Phelps routine where they're swimming four hours a day and burning ten thousand calories so they can eat, you know, fifteen thousand or whatever. Michael, Michael, there's there's old stories about Michael Phelps eating like ridiculous amounts of calories because he could he burned so many during the day. But I was way off, FYI, three thousand no, calories. Sorry, 3, that seems more realistic. <laughs> but still, uh, I mean, to run twenty. What, 27 miles, miles, 26 miles, 26, 26.5 or whatever, 26, 26 miles and to only burn 3000 calories. Like, you know, the average, you know, the average caloric intake for a person for the day is 2000. So yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound is, like all that much. <laughs> see, see, well, the, well, well, I mean, yeah, if you're running a marathon every day, you can definitely eat way more calories, but in general, no one, no one's doing that. I guess always no one's doing that. But most people are, like you said, burning what four hundred calories, five hundred calories, exercising, on the treadmill, yeah. and that's a, generally a, a. It seems to show that quite a bit of that is going to be compensated for in the decrease of your body's activity the rest of the day. Uh, you won't. You'll unconsciously do less in general. Um, well, I mean, you also. I mean, the this 
the mental standpoint of like, well, I went to the gym today. I yeah. should have this cookie, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that I, that I did, too, yeah. Definitely. I did well, so I'm going to reward myself. Well, yeah. okay, well, you, yeah. ate, you ate three cookies, and guess what? You didn't actually go to the gym at all because you took more. Yeah, into, yeah. Um, but but I, I want to say, I want to preface, exercise to me is by far the most important thing for health and longevity, but it's, my, it's definitely not the most important thing for weight loss. Uh, it has... Tons of benefits and weight loss is included, but the diet just like blows it out of the water and the total amount of calories blows it out of the water. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with the, these weight loss drugs or um, not that I can think of. Uh, I also, I might add maybe hopefully we might end up seeing whether or not these drugs also play a role could increase lifespan in mice. Hopefully those studies will be coming out soon, sooner or late, sooner than later. Um, I think it might be possible, but that's, that's a, on the docket in the future. Maybe that'll be a 2023 thing that I can announce well, I mean, 2023 breakthroughs. I guess to that point, if your mice are obese, and they become healthy, they will generally live longer. They'll live longer, but I'm talking about it. Let's let's just take a healthy mouse and see if it'll extend lifespan. And I think it could be possible. Like one of the well, the most well-known lifespan extenders in mice is calorie restriction. So will these drugs sort of act like a, a calorie restrictor or cause calorie restriction in the mice because they're just not interested in eating? Uh, and then it will extend. Will it extend lifespan? I guess we will Time find out. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so if you saw Keaton sharing his screen earlier, you might have seen the next topic. Um, uh, defying death. Why don't you expand yeah, a little bit onto that? This is um, my favorite one, and and uh, it, it does. It's very comp complicated, and I don't quite fully understand. But also, I don't think the researchers fully understand it. So, it's just a really exciting and awesome result. And so. Um, this is kind of like a redefinition of what we think of as death. It generally, when we think of death, you're, the heart has stopped, blood isn't flowing anymore. Um, Neurons aren't and, firing. And yes, the electrical activity of the brain ceases. So researchers, I think this is, these are at Yale, took pigs and uh, essentially stopped the heart. Stopped the heart let them dead for an hour. This is like dead, dead, very dead. And, and if this happened to a human, you'd be probably in the morgue <laughs> by then. Uh, so they let them sit for an hour. And then after an hour, they were, they perfused the pig. So they basically infused the circulation with this cocktail of all sorts of drugs slash uh, uh, I guess it's just experimental drugs and other necessary nutrients, metabolites for signaling, just a ton of stuff. And crazily enough, the hearts, when they restarted the heart and, and set it to, to uh, beat again, the organs started becoming revived. They got activity in multiple organs and the cardiac activity was restored uh, they they prevented brain activity from being restored because that would be potentially very unethical, I guess, to zombie have zombie pigs. <laughs> so we don't really know the extent of whether or not this would, you know, fully revive a pig. But it seemed like 
all the organs that they looked at. So I think it was the heart, the kidneys, and probably the liver. I can't quite remember. Probably the liver uh, looked fine when they when they looked at their function. They looked at tissue sections of the tissue to look and see for cell death. They looked almost like nothing had happened. And this sort of leads you to wonder is like what we consider death really death. Uh, we for our entire uh, being have considered once the heart stops, the brain activity stops, you're dead. But now this sort of leads to, well, what happens when someone's in a car wreck and they're dead at the scene, but we got there fast enough and we can just shoot them up with this new cocktail of whatever it's called. I think it was like organ X, whatever they called it. And you could revive them potentially. So it's probably the most exciting thing I've ever seen in, in biology. And I don't know why more people aren't like psyched about this. I It got very little media attention. And to me, it's like, like, why are we putting this in the clinic right now? <laughs> like, what what do you have to lose? <laughs> They're already dead. It's uh, so, of course, the bioethicists or whatever have to hop in and say, well, they, you know, they might not want to live or it's too risky. But to me, it's like, well, I mean, we have, have we have <laughs> like do not resuscitate already. Like, yeah, yeah. If they if they didn't want to live, maybe. Maybe they they signed something before. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, like, there's people that are like, hey, if I can get revived, revive me, you know? Yeah. And there's other people of like, you know, I'm old. Let's let's time to move on. (laughs) I I do not want to be resuscitated. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I see see the point, but at the same time, like, we already have kind of crossed that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you might not know the answer to this since it's, you know, so new resuscitating somebody you know with the um what is that I'm just like blanking the, the ad like shock yeah the shock yeah. shock mechanism um what kind of i mean obviously there's the physical difference of well one's a shock and it's going to restart your heart yeah this is a it sounds like a cocktail of different drugs and um, yeah so go ahead if, so okay so so this is where we'll change uh, or i'll sort of modify so this, that when you shock the heart, it's restarting the heart. You, if you shock someone and restart the heart at an hour post death, they're they're gone. <laughs> it's like you're you're not going to get anything. You're and, just shocking them to shock them, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these pigs, they're I mean they're having their heart shocked, or I I don't really know what the mechanism they're doing. They're probably actually physically doing the pumping that originally restarts the heart, but in essence. It's like a shock plus defibrillator. Plus the yeah, defibrillator. So it's like a shock plus. Um, okay, so they're they're the still doing the shock. I guess you still have to get that electrical current back through the heart to get it to yes revitalize. Yeah, but what makes it new is everything gets restored because y- you. I, I think one of the main one of the main pieces that's helping this to work is they have like cell death inhibitors in the cocktail of drugs which so cell death inhibitors gonna prevent cells from initiating cell death these processes don't happen immediately upon 
loss of oxygen. They take a little bit of time to initiate. So if you block them, it might, it seems that it actually works pretty freaking well. So yeah, this, this is like, to me is the most exciting thing in medicine I've, I've probably ever seen. And I really hope it doesn't get left on the side of like a lot of stuff does and take 50 years to get in the clinic because this could cha- this could be the biggest changing world changing um uh drug in history even if it doesn't revive a human to the point of you know actually functioning again it can be used for the people who have died and have elected to have organ transplant you could take the organs out and then perfuse the organs with this to preserve them for longer for transplant patients it's it would be massive for for those sorts of uh, implications at a minimum and but just thinking if it does work well and you can function fairly well after after the perfusate and once they optimize it if you can survive i mean this kind of ends like car wreck it ends a chunk of car wreck deaths or traumatic injuries because if you could replace the blood loss with blood transfusions plus this i don't see what could stop someone or, or what would uh, prevent them from being resuscitated in a way. And or and it, on top of that, there's also people that are 30 years old who have sudden cardiac death. There's athletes who have sudden cardiac death. These things are like not uncommon. Uh, it's they're still atypical. But... Yeah, they're 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 not normal, but they definitely happen. And you, it's usually a genetic modification that's undiagnosed their whole life until you know, the, the very first symptom onset is death. You don't know you have it until you're dead. And it's, uh, this could essentially end that if, if, you know, you get to the victim fast enough. enough. Yeah. If you, and I'm sure there'll be some type of moral, like, okay, well they've, you know, it's been an hour, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously there'll be some type of physical restriction, um, of like, well, you know, your cells initiated death, you know, the death sequence and okay, well, we can't do it now, but um, I'm sure there'll be some type of moral authority of, well, you've been dead for an hour. You know, we're not going to, you know, after an hour, it's not, we're not going to do it, you know, kind of thing. I, I don't know. You might think differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, that's what the bioethicists, they all debate in their high towers. Of, <laughs> they, they'll talk about like, Oh, when's that, when is it ethical or unethical to give the drug? You know, you know, to me, uh, I want to survive. Give me, give me the drug every time. So if we have to like have each individual person, um, give a time fill frame. out, yeah. yeah, then so be it. And let's get this thing, let's get this thing going. Uh, I don't really think that. I think it's immoral to, you know, not give a medicine when you have a potential to save a life. We wouldn't, we wouldn't let someone bleed out if they were on the verge of death, or we shouldn't. I, guess. Well, I mean, I mean, we don't. And at least in the United States, we don't reject people if they go to the emergency room. Whether yeah, yeah, exactly. Doesn't matter what type of uh, injury it is; they they have to admit you. Yeah, yeah. So, but but of course, you know, I'm not saying that this would necessarily work 100% in humans, and I we don't even know if it fully worked in the pigs. We don't know if they would get up and run around because they prevented the the brain from being uh, resuscitated by essentially just clamping. Uh, preventing the blood brainstem from, maybe or something yeah you know, kind of brainstem yeah so so we don't know if it actually would work but with that said 
the original paper that catalyzed this was from two years ago. And they used the same technology just in the brain and it restored electrical activity in brains of deceased pigs for an hour. So, you know, you put two and two together, uh, it seems like it would definitely restore electrical activity in the brains. And whether or not that leads to a fully functioning pig at the end, who knows? Um, well, and like you said, at the very minimum, like maybe we get more organs out of, you know, donors. And um, I, I wonder what these kind of drugs do for a healthy person. Like normally, you probably may not want to administer them to a healthy person. Yeah, but probably not. I, um, I, I have no idea because there's so many drugs in the in the cocktail that... I don't think it could possibly be ideal. <laughs> well, they're probably going to try it on a pig sometime. So. Yeah, eventually. Um, well, so if this is being tried in pigs, obviously this is pretty fairly early stages. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is this something I guess they're going to ex- you know, experiment on with other animals? Um, I would guess. I would guess so. I mean, actually, I mean. As it becomes more mainstream, are, I mean. Yeah, pigs are, are fairly close to Monkey human. trials. Uh, I mean, monkey trials would probably be next. Uh, but pigs are are pretty freaking representative, especially at least a pig heart. I mean, that's kind of where we get uh, there. There, there's a whole field of medicine or science that thinks you can like humanize a pig heart, essentially get rid of all the pig viruses, and that could be used for transplant patients because the anatomy and the physiology is so similar between a human and a pig even more so I think than like a chimpanzee. I mean, just size wise. So and, pretty... and for anyone at home, we're kind of describing the different, if you, if you're not aware, the kind of the different trial stages of before they get to human trials yeah. and then eventually released for public use. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, generally you being go, at the top. Yeah. Generally you go cells, a cell dish, culture dish, mouse, well, you might you might do see elegance or some flies like little worms or flies before mice but generally you go cell cell culture mice and then a lot of times you go straight to monkeys um but pigs are definitely the next the intermediary between the mouse mouse and the chimpanzee and then you end up in humans and this is more like one of the reasons why i mean obviously to keep humans safe um without these kind of trials who knows what kind of havoc we'd have been wrecked with um, if we just released all these drugs just or different, you know, experiments, I guess, just straight off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's super important to keep humans safe. Um, And as we, the trials, they get more and more human like, I guess is more human like DNA and different uh, whether it's appendages or organs. um, Yeah. Is kind yeah, of yeah. thought process for the trials. You, yeah, you, you want to get closer and closer to the human model is generally what you do for the trials. But with that said, when it's something as... Uh, so the idea is, like you said, you want to prevent risk risky drugs from getting into healthy or unhealthy humans. Healthy patients have to try the drugs first, generally. Um, but in this case, your patient cohort is dead. Uh, so, so it's like, what do you have to lose if you want to sign up for the trial? Uh, it's, I mean, of course you need, uh, well, I mean, in a lot of these cases, people have donated their bodies to science. I yes, mean, I've heard yes. of, you know, um, family friends that have said like, Hey, 
you know, is a, a cadaver, you know, use me as a, you know, I want to donate my body to science for different medical research. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, what makes this so interesting is this is kind of, this would be like a completely different trial design that's ever been, been done because you have to have a dead patients, but you also have to have consent. So you have to get consent from someone before they've died. So, which means you need to get consent from what millions of people and have this ready to go in tons of hospitals because any of them who dies, you have to be ready to, to, uh, yeah, shoot them up. <laughs> it's like a very, very, like com- a stem shot. A very complex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a stem shot. <laughs> um, yeah, that is, that is interesting. I mean, at least in modern medicine, I'm sure in the past they did plenty of experiments on, Oh yeah, people, yeah. Um, you know, whether dissecting or not, and whether yeah. consented or not. Um, yeah, <laughs> that would that would not fly in today's uh, today's culture for good reason. For good reason. For good reason. Yeah, but you definitely need consent before you know you attempted a potential revival of someone. Because <laughs> I mean, the truth is, who knows if they come out sane, the, you know, or sane, the same person, uh, not functioning. They're, they're basically paralyzed forever. They're kind of like just a, uh, just alive in the sense of be of the body is they functioning, but vegetable. they're not. They're not actually. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- exactly. A vegetative state. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't. We could go on a lot of tangents, and this might not be one of them, but like assisted suicide, um, and that kind of that might not be the right term. Um, Hey, I'm a vegetable. You know, if I, you know, maybe that's in the form of like, hey, if I come back and I can't, you know, talk, you know, there's certain things. Just yeah, me, yeah, you know? um, yeah. I actually think that would definitely be something that would have to be talked about with patients. You know, assisted suicide might not be the right term. That's, that's I mean, that's, that's what essentially other... what it would be. It's a, that's essentially what it would be. Uh, like I'm on a, I, I can only exist with a ventilator, or pull the plug, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the assisted suicide stuff is like wild but i guess That's this a, would be quite a bit different than than uh the current uh, assisted suicide state is right now yeah assisted suicide in that sense is a lot different than this medical revival i guess mm-hmm. um and like i said that's a whole another socio-political topic that could go on for hours and is debated by quite a bit of people already yeah um but yeah the, this the stem shot of concoction of drugs sounds pretty interesting. Um, and you get into a lot of different medical bridges that we haven't crossed yet Mm -hmm. or not crossed as a modern society. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that has never been seen. And, uh, you've never had this sort of risk reward profile in a drug ever. You know, there's literally, next to no risk if what you're talking about is just wanting to be alive and the reward is potentially surviving (laughs) it's it's like uh the ultimate it's like the ultimate drug if it if it worked uh but there's so many ethical things that have to get debated and there'll have to be trials and the monkeys so it'll take a long time i wish it was faster and yeah i guess that's as far as i should go with that (laughs) because Uh, I could uh, get myself into trouble being too passionate about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, do you have any hot takes about uh, CAR T 
cells or weight loss drugs or this defying stem shot, defying death stem shot? Mm. Well, I, I guess I sort of already said my hot take on the the organ, the revival, which is my hot take is that this is the most world-changing drug that's ever existed or potential, I drugs. guess. Potential, potential. Um, and then for the CAR-T, I think it's something that I really, it's actually, they're working on getting it into human trials now. So that's something super exciting to me. We'll, I'll be following it over the next several years because it'll take a long, it takes a long time to do the trials and the weight loss drugs. I mean, we're going to see in 2023, it's going to be prescribed everywhere. It's already being prescribed everywhere. Uh, it's just going to become more and more well-known and I'm excited for that. So yeah, I think those are my takes on the, on the biology breakthroughs of the year. There's a ton of other stuff in biology that happened this year. I won't go into so much detail, but I mean, textbooks rewritten on the TCA cycle is now a lot different than the general textbook. There's modular RNA payload editing, it, uh, tons of stuff like sequencing. Uh, light, I think it was like a light sequencing microscopy, like stuff that's just like so futuristic. Uh, we can't even imagine, but it's just, you could go on and on with what's happened in the last year for at least at the basic science level. Which is a lot different than what kind of what we talked about in this, on the last podcast was, yeah, there's not a ton of, new physical advances as far as technology a lot of software computer-based yes but. yes so the, like i like i said last week there's not a ton of, there's not a ton of physical advances but physical advances in biology are like happening at an extreme pace but can we get those into people or into the real world is yet to be seen uh at scale uh at least in some modes i'm excited i'm excited for biology i do think biology is the first thing and since uh what since like the space race in the physical world that that could potentially see a massive acceleration over the next decade i mean that's kind of my prediction i'm really excited for it but it is also an extremely regulated field both maybe overregulated, but for good reasons for very good reasons um so we'll see if it does come to fruition at scale in the real world or not. Yeah. Well, I guess my hot take might be that the, and this is kind of based off what you just said, that COVID pumped a lot of money into research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously there's a ton of downsides to what happened with COVID, you know, the economy, people, you know, death, all that. Um, but maybe the government or you know the money being funneled into biology is being maybe more focused um or maybe more money's pouring into it like i said there's obviously a ton of downsides i want to preface that um, yeah but yeah maybe, and maybe there's quite a bit there's been a lot of money uh, since it, it, it definitely attracted a lot more attention but it, it actually didn't increase the budget so terribly much but i think i'm just what, saying like moderna and stuff with their stock prices yeah yeah obviously that, they had a the cash influx from that kind of yeah, stuff that that money has definitely uh will definitely pay dividends but the uh, other the other maybe even more important part is you know a ton of kids grew up and saw saw this whole pandemic happening and they saw like real life innovation happening at a rapid scale which of course a lot of people 
get really upset about the whole COVID vaccine thing. But in, in reality, that's it was a rapid innovation and put at scale in the world. And a lot of people saw that and probably got really excited about doing science or doing research, seeing that you can actually affect the future with inventions, which I think is something that a lot of like our generations lost or not our generation, but lots of uh, basically after. every generation, every generation since basically the sixties or seventies has sort of lost the generation that you can, that even just a group of people can completely change uh, the physical world by creating something. And I think that's probably the best dividend that, that, that whole situation will pay out that terrible situation will pay in the future. Yeah. Well, um, if you don't have anything else, I'm going to sign us off. Um, nope. This has been Keaton and Evan with Simply Technical. Like, share, subscribe. Uh, check it out. Uh, check us out on YouTube, Anchor, Spotify. Uh, we were just going through all the podcasts links that were on earlier. So um, we'll catch anywhere. you guys next time. See you.